You were listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 113. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm here with Alicia again, and we are back from our national conference in Ottawa, of which Alicia was the co-chair. And I want to give a massive round of applause. I don't know if I have any applause sound effects for her here, but... uh, Her and Kieran Sunny did a wonderful job of organizing our first national conference in over four years where we could actually arrive and see each other's smiley faces in person. So congratulations, Alicia. Are you grateful to have it done? Are you happy with the outcome? I, I am very grateful that it's done. I I think I'm happy with the outcome. I'm still waiting for all the surveys and the feedback to filter in and it's always interesting because there are so many things that you just have to manage on the fly, right? There's many things that are happening all at once. So um, it was it was pretty funny during the conference that there was a full fire evacuation of the entire conference facility. So that put a little bit of a, a damper in the plans and things needed to be rejigged quickly. So there was there was never a dull moment in the conference. Oh my goodness, I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah, they literally had to have us exit right in the middle of a session, those poor speakers. And uh, in the end, yes, we had some bumps along the road, but it was fantastic. And in fact, uh, it was in Ottawa and we had, that was by far the best conference that I've been to is, you know, for as long as I can remember. And uh, the good thing about those conferences is we had a chance to rub shoulders with the government officers. And in particular, this topic that we have today for our podcast, Employer Compliance Reviews, you learn a little bit about the current trends and where these uh, inspections and the, um, the officers that are trying to keep the foreign worker program and the international mobility program, keep it honest, where, they're, you know, where their emphasis are, where their priorities are. And things are definitely ramping up. And... Uh, yeah, just the, the conference just was a great opportunity to, to get a little bit more insight to be able to share with our clients and to better prepare us, especially even as immigration lawyers, business immigration lawyers, as we're trying to advise our clients to avoid all of the nastiness that we talked about in episode 112. So all of those, um, those tools that they have at their disposal, it all starts with the employer compliance review. And it probably makes sense to start with a little story on this front. So every once in a while, we get contacted by employers who have used other folks to help them or had done things themselves, and now they're facing audits and inspections. And these, uh, this whole world of employer compliance reviews has evolved over time. In the beginning, um, there was lots of fire and brimstone and, and threats and, you know, trying to scare employers, but there really wasn't a lot of teeth. And as we talked about in episode 112, the last episode, um, that the consequences are real and they are uh, 
um, they're more than willing, uh, ESDC, to apply those consequences when employers are just not doing what they're supposed to do and you can't turn a blind eye. Well, I was contacted by an employer who uh, was subject to an inspection and uh, they happen in a couple different ways. And, you know, maybe before I get to the story, maybe Alicia, you can just let our listeners know how these things initiate, what, what triggers them. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things that can actually trigger an inspection. One of them is a random selection. So ESDC, Service Canada, is going to look at all the employers who have submitted their LMIAs or their offers under the IMP that are employer specific, and they're going to randomly select a certain percentage of them. And it seems now that they're selecting more and more percentage wise. So instead of it being about a 30% inspection rate, it's probably closer to a 40% inspection rate, which is, you know, your odds of getting inspected are going up and up. The other thing is that there could be something in your application itself that triggers them to do an audit or an inspection. So if you have done a prior LMIA and you're going to submit your second LMIA, they can go back and they can look at the first one. The next thing that can trigger them to do an inspection would be a tip line. And so this is something that they've actually staffed up quite a bit. And when we were at the conference, I went to the LMIA inspection session. And it's really important to know that there's a tip line, there's a web form, the consulates are involved in terms of tips as well. So they are gathering tips on potential bad actors. And 41% of tips trigger the inspection. 33% of tips actually result in inspections, and most of the issues are with respect to wages or abusive employers. And those tips are not only referred to just Service Canada ESDC, but they're also referred to CBSA and IRCC. So this gets distributed throughout the network. The other thing to keep in mind is this tip line is fully public and people can call in and it used to be just kind of an automated message or you'd you'd leave a message, but now it's staffed by real live human beings. And this is funny because Usually in immigration, you can never find a real live human being, but this is one instance where you can. And these real live human beings actually are trained. So there's a number of different languages. They actually said there are 200 different languages that an officer will be able to speak with you in. That's quite amazing when you think about how they have gone to unbelievable lengths to prevent us from speaking to anyone in person. It's just a testament to the reality of of accessing the foreign worker programs. Um, The government at this stage recognizes that the increased usage of these programs um, is only going to escalate. And as the company, you know, as as companies are desperate to find workers, they're going to be more and more turning to the foreign worker program. And let's face it, when there are opportunities to be made, you know, dollars to be made through recruiting and other things, um, sometimes uh, employers can get themselves into trouble. And so, let me tell my story. So contacted by this, this employer who had a number of franchises, food service, which tends to be mm, typical, uh, Surrey, which tends to be kind of a location of uh, kind of a hotbed of somewhat um, creative approaches to uh, accessing the immigration program. I don't know how else to say it other than there's a lot of bad people, uh, you know, anyways. Uh, so in this situation, the employer... Um, had kind of developed a little bit of a side deal with the employees. So he said, look, I know that this LMA says I'm supposed to pay you X dollars, 
but uh, costs have gone up, and now just when we are ready to submit, um, you know the the wages have increased, and I'm not prepared to pay you that extra wage. So if you want to come, you have to agree with me that you will work for the lower rate, which of course is bad. It's not good. That's completely contrary to the you know the the you know the rules associated with uh, accessing any of the programs, and so. Um, but he tried to set up this side deal. But then once the workers, of course, when you've got that type of a situation, the workers came over and within a couple of months, they would all kind of transition to other other locations. And uh, in this case, I think they were all Francophone, if I'm not mistaken. So they were able to go through the International Mobility Program. Well, this employer received a call from uh, from an inspector. And what triggered it was a tip. And the tip, where did it come from? an existing or past employee uh, of which they had some disagreements. And this particular individual had actually recorded one of the calls, had text messages saying how much the wage was going to be on the side and had some pretty damning evidence. And so, of course, the employer contacts me. And Alicia, you know how sympathetic I am to (laughs) individuals looking to exploit uh, their foreign workers or take advantage of them. And I politely told the individual, well, you have one option. Come come clean and throw yourself at the mercy of the officer. And, uh, you know, explain that, you know, provide whatever explain explanation for your stupidity. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully they won't throw the book at you. But, you know, ultimately it was his word versus the, the foreign workers. And he could have taken the position, but, oh, it was all fabricated. You don't have evidence. And, and it is hard to, to really pin an employer down. But when you've got a motivated uh, ex-employee who is in the process of trying to label you as an abusive employer and get the, uh, you know, the the uh, vulnerable foreign worker work permit, the open work permit, which is what this individual was trying to do, he needed to prove that the employer was sketch. And, you know, I think to some extent, I think it was a combination of the two. But hey, in this case, the the employee, the ex-employee, had the leverage in the situation, and so they went right to immigration and uh, went to. At ESTC and 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 use the tip line, and it all came to a head. And so, one thing we know is that there's a lot of employers that do get away with a lot. And okay. so, because of that, um, when ESTC does find non-compliance in some form or another, they absolutely are going after employers. Unless, of course, and maybe this is a segue for you too, Alicia. Our most recent experience with another another employer. Um, it was much more positive news. And do you mm-hmm. want to share a little bit of detail on that one? Yeah, I mean, well, there was, I've had a couple. I, I also had a consult mark and there was another company that was in the construction business that had hired a subcontractor. And I think we made reference to this in one of our earlier podcasts, but employers have to be so, so careful if they're in a situation where they have subcontractors and those subcontractors are bringing people onto the work site. Because if that's the case, the ultimate employer is still gonna be on the hook for what their subcontractors do if there's a relationship between those two entities. So that was one circumstance. The other one was Again, it was an employer before they had begun working with us, had tried to do it with a different set of overseas agents and things got missed and not done properly. And 
of course, you know, a few years go by, right? Because most of the, the chickens don't come home to roost until a couple years later in many circumstances. And in this case, there was an inspection that was, that was triggered and they started asking questions about what happened on this application a few years ago. And it turned out that, well, one, the, the wages were not correct. And so sometimes employers get very frazzled. They don't know what's going on with the employer portal. They put in wages. They have a deal with the employee that's under an international mobility program. They figure, oh, well, you know, I just have to meet the wages that are going to be relatively okay. It doesn't have to meet the median wage because we're not dealing with an LMIA. And if these are relatively young people under one of the IMP employer specific categories, then, you know, maybe they're going to try to pay them less. So there's some interesting situations that can happen in terms of who is communicating what at what point and then what got put in the employer portal. And the ultimate deal is whatever's in the employer portal is what you've told the government. That's what the employer is attesting that they will do. And so that is what has to be shown to be paid in all the payslips and not only shown to be paid in the payslips when these inspections happen esdc officers want to see not only what the company says they paid them but they want to see a redacted version of the employee's bank account statements showing that that exact amount has actually arrived in their accounts so it's a two-way street on that. They need one side going and one side being entered and received. So in this circumstance, there was some, some issues with payment and wage. There were some issues with um, averaging agreements on overtime. So that's really important to keep in mind. If you are a company that is going to be varying how you pay overtime, be very, very careful. Make sure that you're following employment standards, code provisions, if you're doing averaging agreements. So make sure that that's in place and get some independent advice on that. And then the other thing too was that the employer in this case had no idea about the changes to the law, September 26, 2022, that requires all employers who are engaging with the Temporary Foreign Worker Program with foreign national employees to make sure that they have provided the employees know your rights documents and have had sign off on that. And so that was one thing that I would like to bring to the attention of everybody. We've put some links in the show notes on an article that I've written on our blog about this because it is really important. And I think people who have been using the LMIA process or the employer portal for a few years may not necessarily know that there were changes that are absolutely essential. And more people hopefully will begin to know it because of the new Annex Bs that they have to file and they have to certify these things. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that you have mandatory provincial certification processes for Manitoba and BC. So that's often, I, I get calls to people saying, well, what does this mean? Why did I get this follow-up? And which provinces require certification? So that is something for employers to note as well. But yeah, on an inspection, they are going to look at a whole range of 28 factors to make sure that everything is in order. So where does an employer start, Alicia? If you were to be engaged uh, by a, a company to assist with the labor market impact assessment process. It's, it's approved and everybody's celebrating and now they're getting ready to bring the worker over. What are the first things that you tell an employer to, to prepare so that you've got your house in order, both mm -hmm. at the time in which the 
you know, the, the, the work permit is issued as well as throughout the duration of that employee's time with them mm-hmm. and beyond, of course. And that's, that's probably like a whole hour discussion in and of itself. But what we try to do is to try to have a business immigration strategy in place and think about these things all from the outset. So when we're looking at an LMIA, making sure that the company is doing everything that they need to do to prove that they have genuinely tried to recruit Canadians. And this is not being cute about, you know, tailoring your ads so that nobody could possibly qualify in Canada. This is genuine trying to find a Canadian. So keep proof of all of the advertising and recruiting efforts that you went through. So it's not only the advertisements that were publicly posted, but ESDC might ask for redacted resumes or facts about when you interviewed or which references you called or when you had Canadian candidates, why were they not qualified? So have a detailed spreadsheet to document all that and have the ability to source those documents. Wages is huge. And I think you referred to the fact that the wages might have changed and they do change. So every now and again, the job bank site will have a revision to the median wages and keep in mind companies always misread this or sometimes certain people HR professionals or somebody at the company might misread this but it's not when you look at those job bank wages it'll show you three columns and you cannot pay the low wage you always have to pay the lowest end of your wage has to be the median So making sure that you keep screenshots of what the median wage was at the time that you actually advertised and recruited all the way up until submission of the LMIA, because it changes, it varies. So keep screenshots of all of that. And then know what you've put in your documents when you go to submit your LMIA and all of the supporting letters and contracts, keep records of all of that, make sure that it's signed by both parties. Sometimes in the past, I think people used to be a little bit lax with who signed the documents. Sometimes it was only the employee or only the employer, but make sure that all parties have signed those documents ahead of time and maintain proof. Make sure that you are keeping your payroll records up to date. Make sure that when your employee actually gets their work permit, that is logged and diarized in your system so that you actually get a copy of the work permit. Sometimes what happens is the employee comes in on a long flight, they get the work permit, they know they have it, but they never give a copy to the employer or to legal counsel. And so if there's something that's wrong on that work permit, that needs to be addressed and remedied right away. And also the expiry date needs to be diarized so that people are taking action to extend or change status well ahead of time. So those are some things to make sure that you're doing right from the get-go. Payroll records absolutely need to be kept in line and in order. And you've got to have copies of everything somewhere searchable and if your main contact happens to go away make sure that you have a backup person who knows where all those immigration documents are and it's interesting as you think back to practical um uh, you know you're giving advice on on keeping track of the expiry dates of work permits and keeping copies of them and as counsel as immigration lawyers and, and representatives the reality is there's nothing worse than a company coming the day before saying, oh, you helped us to get this first work permit. We, it's expiring tomorrow. We need you to help get another one. And it was an LMIA-based work permit. So to save your own skin and your own hassle of trying to, to deal with this at a, you know, in a dire situation, 
it's just, it makes good sound, um, uh, you know, advice from a practitioner standpoint to ensure that you're tracking the expiry dates of the work permits that you've assisted employers with, um, just so that you can manage your own life and, and not be stuck. And, and, you know, you will look like a, a rock star to your employers when you're advising them in advance. Hey, we're about four months out from, you know, from, from Sally Smith's work permit expiring and, and, uh, have you thought about, are you going to extend it? What can we do to help you? So from a business standpoint, it makes a lot of sense just being able to continue to work with employers, but also from a, a strategic and planning sense, it's just, it's just so much better to be proactive. So keeping track of those is critical. Mm-hmm. So uh, Alicia, we, we talk about this maintaining of proof. So we know in terms of documentation, you want to keep track of, um, you know, uh, of everything so that you can monitor and ensure that, uh, you know, um, if there is, if there is an audit, but there's a lot of things that you do have to prove. And and I want to point out to the listeners in our show notes, we have a link to the government website. And in every case, the one piece of advice I would give you is that you provide this to the employer. And if you, at some point, you don't have to do it every time you, you complete an LMIA with them, but at some point you really need to go through it with them. And I recommend you don't just give them the link, but you, but you go through their obligations so that they are aware. And if you can educate them and train them, life will be so much better for them and for you. And one of the things we talked about a little bit that we kind of heard about at the national conference was this trusted employer program, which they flirted with this for years. And, um, actually I remember years ago they did have one, you know, where if you'd already gone through and you behaved yourself, um, and this is years now, you, uh, in some cases on renewals, you didn't have to provide new advertising. That was a long time ago. But in this case, anything that you can do to cut through the red tape and uh, to establish your employer as a good actor and someone that's going to, um, you know, abide by the rules and is trying to do things right, it's going to make life so much easier. And even one of our clients right now is, has, you know, has really, you know, some of the, some folks are, are, are really trying to push to maybe not do things as, not not improperly but be as thorough with their approach um we've we've really tried to resist with them and to try to teach them look if we can put our best foot forward right at the beginning you're going to establish a really good relationship with the the government department whether it's ESDC or even IRCC in the context of work permits and if you're a company that's recruiting or there's a lot of cross-border movement of personnel if you can really put your first, uh, your, your first step forward and, and, and really build a good, good relationship, then you're going to get far more benefit of the doubt going forward. And uh, it might require a little bit more work. It might take a little bit more time to put things together. It might take a little bit more time to get workers here. But if you do it right in the beginning, it's going to set the stage for a long and positive uh, relationship with, with government. And right. so... Yeah, that's a reality that we're, we're struggling with right now. Absolutely. And there's so much temptation for people to cut corners. So people who are trying to find employees in foreign countries, the employees themselves are trying to push back saying, well, do I actually need to provide all these documents to get approved on these work permits once the company has the LMIA? You know, can we just fudge the fact that I have language ability or 
there are a number of circumstances where it is going to cost you money to do it properly. You've got to go and get the test results. You've got to go and do the work to provide the letters of reference from prior employers. You've got to go and um, spend the time and energy and effort to properly vet all the candidates because on the back end, if you don't, then there is a risk that these employees are a, going to be denied their work permits, but you're going to lose spots on the LMIAs. And then even if they do get here and they end up not having the skills and requirements, there's a risk on inspections, right? The fact that you're having people who don't fit the requirements of the job and that undermines the integrity of your entire application. Absolutely. All right, let's take a little break from our sponsor. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing! Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y, number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. All right, so let's take a look at uh, what happens when the inspection is actually triggered. So what can people expect? Like, how do these things happen? Is it in person? Mm-hmm. Is it phone? Is it surprise? Mm-hmm. Is it advanced warning? Mm-hmm. What, what do we typically see? It could be any of those things. So during the pandemic, of course, because of health and safety um, regulations, because people generally were not in the offices and not able to move around and there was masking and things like that, most of the inspections were being done by paper. Well, technically paper, they call it paper, but they mean electronically. So most of the inspections were being done over email or by phone. But they do definitely, ESDC has the power to simply show up at an employer's door. And I don't know how many employers realize that it is a warrantless search. They can come in and they can search the premises. They have the ability to interview other staff members. They can ask to take the computers and review documents and copy documents. They can take your cell phone and start looking through records on there if you're um, a director or an employee of the company. And they have very wide powers on warrantless searches. They can come to the place of business and there are obligations for the employer to facilitate the search. And this this is a big deal. So, hmm, if you're an employer and you have uh, this one of these surprise drop-ins, how how would you advise an employer to deal with it? Like, obviously, the inspections. We'll get to the paper, but let's go to the worst one, and then we'll we'll backtrack from there. Can they really, Alicia, just demand to see things? Like, don't yeah. they have to give, you know, uh, give some notice or 
you know, can they, do they have the powers to talk to people? Like how far does it go? Yep. Yep. I mean, in general, normally it would start with an email and it would normally start with, please provide us these things. We're doing an inspection or an audit and we want to double check that you've been compliant and you've paid wages and give us the records and give us the redacted employee bank accounts showing they received what you said you were going to pay them. And we want to look at how you've been running payroll. So normally it would be stuff like that and it would be by email. And then the company would normally have a response time and then the ability to provide written submissions and then there might be that might go to a complicated case officer who's going to review it in a complex case and provide a deadline for a response but in some circumstances especially if there was maybe a tip line involved or it's a potential abusive situation where there's an employer who is you know holding an employee's passport which never ever ever ought to be done or if there is physical abuse or verbal abuse going on, then maybe, maybe those inspectors just show up and they are able to, you know, come on entry. They can ask anybody there relevant questions. They can require for examination documents within the premises to be produced. They can copy those documents so they can take photocopies or photos. They can make video recordings or audio recordings. They can examine anything at the place of work. They can require the employer to use computers or other electronic devices to allow the officer to examine any relevant document. And they can have the employer basically accompany them or assist them to search the premises. So what we're trying to get across is that they have significant powers and now they have teeth. Where before, I kind of described the process as a barking dog. It just would kept getting louder and louder. They kept saying, oh, and, you know, uh, you know, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do this. But ultimately, there was no real teeth behind it. There were no amps and bands, as we described them. No administrative monetary penalties, because obviously, when something hits an employer in their, you know, in the wallet, they're going to be far, far more, you know, concerned and worried about it than, you know, than almost anything else. But uh, yeah, these are real and any employer and any representative who does not take these serious in the context of an LMIA is really walking into a minefield. And like you said, Alicia, I'll just remind everyone, what percentage have they told us of employers, uh, LMIAs, do they they try to audit? Yeah, about 40%. So somewhere between 30 to 40% are random audits. Yep, random. That doesn't even count those where there's something, an, an, an external triggering event, like a tip or something like that. So best practice, absolutely be aware of this. This is a part of the process. And, and, and let's face it, Alicia, good employers who are doing all of this correct and, and, and proper right from the beginning have nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. If you have good records, you've, you've, you know, you've kept track of everything that you need to keep track of. You've honored the conditions within the LMIA that was issued and you've treated your workers as you should. You're compliant with employment standards in in the province and you're basically a good employer. You have absolutely nothing to fear, but you need to keep the records accessible. You need to be able to pull them up quickly because it can put things to a halt, right? So if you're in the midst of an inspection, it can delay other things, even though you're fully compliant. And this is really where we get it you know, really drill into our good employers. Of course, every one of our clients are wonderful employers, but this is where we drill into them, how important it is to have that documentation ready 
and uh, it, you know on a moment's notice so that there are no delays. The inspection can go quickly and, and, and they can continue forward. And just, just an anecdote from another colleague who was at the conference, you know, there are situations now where Canada's ramping up again. And so people are doing bulk LMIA applications and, and this is secondhand. I don't know anything about this case in particular, other than what the lawyer was saying, but in that circumstance, it had been the case that the employer had a prior LMIA approved, and then they were going to do a second bulk LMIA. Well, they didn't realize, but they were actually being inspected. And so there was an inspection going on that they didn't know about in the background. And so when they went to submit their second bulk LMIA application, you get charged the processing fees. It's $1,000 per position, and it was a fair number of positions. And all of a sudden they realized, uh-oh, there's an inspection we didn't know about that's ongoing from ESDC. and we've paid the whole bunch of money on the second LMIA and everything's ground to a halt because nothing's going to go on that second LMIA until the results of the inspection on the first LMIA are completed. And that might be many, many, many months. So you might be looking at upwards of six months to even potentially a year, depending on how, you know, how fulsome that investigation was. So be really careful. You need to bake in a whole bunch of extra time if you're looking at doing LMIAs and you may have inspections lurking around in the in the background. Yeah. And we'll just direct you back once again to episode 112 where you can actually hear about the fines and things that uh you know, and sometimes, let's face it, employers need to have the fear of God put to them sometimes to uh, encourage them to be compliant, but that's our job. And it's important not to, um, as counsel, not to roll over, but to stay firm and not cut corners like Alicia said, even though there's a genuine business need for someone, someone getting here quicker. And there's a real temptation to, to kind of not fudge things, but to shave off the corners a little bit just so that you can get things through quicker. Don't do it. Help your employers. Sometimes you have to save them from themselves because in the end, when you're doing things and you're compliant, um, the, the, in the long run, in the short run, it might be more costly. It might take a little bit more time, but in the long run, um, the employer will win out time and time again. So mm-hmm. always remember that. Yeah. Um, I did want to just very, very briefly say, you know, inspections probably will happen. And if you know that you are non-compliant, then the way to deal with it is by coming forward and actually doing a voluntary disclosure. So one of the things that came out from talking with the ESDC officers at the conference was that there are not a lot of voluntary disclosures happening. So there is a process in place whereby if an employer who was honest to goodness doing their best to try to comply with all of the requirements realized, oh, there's all these new documents I've got to provide my employees after September 26, 2022. I had no idea. Um, I've started to do it. I've now done it. I've posted it in our public kind of lunchroom. I've provided it to each employee's employee and I've kept a record of the date that I did so. If they didn't know about that until now, because we're sitting at June of 2023, then they can come forth and they can say, here, I'm going to do a voluntary disclosure. I'm going to tell ESDC, I didn't realize that this was a requirement until this date, and now I fixed it. So there is a methodology of of voluntary disclosure. The key is the employer has to come forward and do that 
before there's an inspection, before there's a tip, before they start being investigated. And if they have done that as a voluntary disclosure, then that is a factor that's taken into account when officers are looking at what the result is going to be. So it can be fewer demerit points, it can be um, more leniency in the fines, it can be maybe ESDC says, you know what, you were doing your best and there's a justification because there is a justification section as well. So it is something that may be used as a tool in the right circumstances, but keep in mind voluntary disclosure has to be done before there is an inspection. Yes. And just to kind of wrap up this discussion and, and this episode, um, in every single case, it is more beneficial to come forward, like Alicia said, in advance. But often as counsel, we don't know about it until the inspection is there. So in those circumstances, cooperation is how we advise. Now, I can't speak for every particular situation, and there might be times in which there's other legal advice based on the seriousness of what's occurred or otherwise. But um, generally speaking, I cannot think of any circumstance in, in our representation for our clients where if there was a situation of non-compliance, that, that the employer wouldn't fully come forward and say, look, here's the documentation. Yes, we were offside. These are steps we're immediately taking to correct it. Oh, we noticed that we didn't pay enough overtime for this person. We've actually before you even tell us to, we've, we've corrected this and, and gone forward and, 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 you know, done the very best they can to sort it out because the, the program is designed to be educative, not punitive. And, you know, the more cooperative an employer is, the more engaged, the more they want to learn and improve and get better, you know, the, the less the consequences are going to be. And, and Alicia, in that story that you shared a little bit before, we had a, another client who notified us right away today. They had some issues. They they were very, you know, felt very, very bad about how it played out and were very transparent and honest and forthright with the inspector. And in the end, there were no fines. Yeah. There were no penalties. Yeah. And I, I told them, you just have to be honest. Like, and it, it was very, very scary. And they were petrified about what would happen. But they were honest. And in that circumstance, it actually worked out. And I will just give a few stats too that they had provided us from the ESDC, but they were saying from April to March of um, so 2022 till 2023, there was over 3000 inspections. Um, a lot of them had to do with quarantine because that was coming out of the pandemic. And then 5.5% were found non-compliant, but they said 49.6 were brought into compliance. And so this is really what ESDC is trying to do. They are trying to give employers a chance to justify and rectify the situation. So if you weren't paying the wages properly, fix your payroll. Now you have paid them the back wages and you fixed it going forward and that's gonna make everybody's lives better. So in the majority of the cases, those inspections resulted into employers being brought into compliance and then everybody's better informed. And hopefully that's the way that the system's going to improve going forward. Yeah. And one last little point as well. The moment you have an employer that is in the midst of an inspection, cease submitting any new LMIAs. And this is just a little reminder, Lee already hinted at this, because if you're submitting LMIAs at $1,000 a pop, $1,000 an individual, and you've got, say, you're seeking 20 whatever it might be, that's $20,000. And if the LMIA 
uh, or sorry, if the if the inspection ultimately comes back as as finding non-compliant, there's no refund on that new LMIA. So, so whatever you do, cease everything. The the employer compliance review becomes everything that the company focuses on. Get through it, then reset and 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 move forward. So. There we go. There's the fire and brimstone from this episode. And, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a lot more positive coming in, in our next episodes. Um, we're going to cover in our, in our next one, we're going to talk a little bit about the transition of these fine foreign workers, the options that they have to remain as permanent residents. And this is something that really for most employers, I think, is a, it comes part and parcel with the decision to bring someone in on an LMIA. Ultimately, you spend all this money and you go through all these resources, you know, these, you burn through all these resources bringing them here. And I think if you're going to go through that effort, you, you want them to stay. You want them to stay with your company. And so we'll talk a little bit about that when an employee wants to apply. And there's some things that people have to be aware of, uh, you know, in that process. And as counsel, we'll also maybe touch a little bit on dual representation. I think that would be important as well. And I know we have talked about that before, but we'll We'll bring that up a little bit more in the context of PR because things happen. People change their mind. People change jobs. And if you're representing both, you need to be very, very aware of that. And yeah, Mark, what you said about transitioning is very, very important too, because if you're trying to transition a temporary worker to a permanent resident, that might have been something that you actually said was one of your measures in your transition plan when you filed that LMIA. And if that's true, then ESDC can actually inspect or do an audit on well, you've said in your transition plan you were going to train X number of Canadians by X date. Show me the proof that you've actually done what you said you were going to do. So it's not only, you know, wages and um, overtime, but it's also what were the other parameters that were submitted in your application and are you following through and making good on those? And keep in mind, these inspections are up to six years from the date that you have filed your application. So six years is a long time to make sure you're keeping all the proof of everything you said you were going to do. Yep. Serious business, folks. Serious business. Well, Alicia, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, As we close, I want to give a shout out once again to Journey Business Plans, who is our sponsor. And at the conference, we had a chance to meet Marianella Manzur, who's the partner and global director of sales and marketing with Journey here in Canada. And it was great to see her in person. First time I'd actually met her in person. And uh, we'll definitely have a journey on to do some other things, some featured kind of things. But we're uh, very, very grateful for them as a sponsor of the podcast. Now, if you would like to join us, we have... Uh, we're going to kickstart our series of, of invited guests to share insight and tips on all aspects of, uh, of uh, the Canadian immigration process. So watch and tune in in the future for some, uh, some of our colleagues across the country that will be joining us. And we, Alicia and I, will continue on with our series here, our business immigration series. So stay tuned. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts, um, please don't hesitate to, uh, to reach out to either Alicia or I, and uh, we'd love to get your input. Make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and we'll see you guys all again in a little bit. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. 
If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast.